Hello, and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we sit down with a special guest, drink coffee, and talk justice. Now, do you ever get into a conversation, and regardless of your passion for a certain subject, you find yourself struggling to make your point, scrambling for words, and not quite finding them? Consequently, you're left with the frustrating dissatisfaction of not having made your thoughts properly known. It happens to me all the time. In this podcast, I speak with the best-selling author and former Met Police Borough Commander, John Sutherland. John, or Johnny, to his friends, which whether he likes it or not, I'm now calling myself, has a wonderful gift for articulation. And in his books, as well as in person, I think he does as good a job, if not a considerably better job, at describing my thoughts about the police, warts and all, than I could do myself. And I'm confident that many former and current police officers would say the same. Johnny left the Met in 2015 after spending 25 years in the police. Shortly after leaving, he wrote a book called Blue, a memoir, Keeping the Peace, and falling to pieces, in which he recounts much of his life spent in uniform, including the breakdown which led to his early retirement. The book became a Sunday Times bestseller, and last year he followed it up with his second publication, Crossing the Line, Lessons from a Life on Duty. In this book, he discusses 10 of the biggest challenges to modern day policing as he sees it. And we're going to be looking at a few of those in this podcast. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Johnny Sutherland. Johnny, welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. It's so good to sit down with you virtually and have this conversation. How are you? I'm doing all right, thank you. Just out of the second lockdown, but living life quietly at home. Good. Now, I normally start all podcasts with all guests by asking them about their coffee drinking habits, but I already know because we went for a coffee, or rather I went for a coffee and you you had a tin of Fanta, that you're not a big coffee man. That's right, isn't it? It, yeah, it is. It's one of my multitude of faults and failings in life. I, I, I actually, I genuinely wish that I was a coffee drinker. I feel like I'm missing out on something in life, but I just, I've never got the taste for it. So, it's, you, you know, coffee cake and coffee chocolates, and I, I'm, I'm sad to say I don't like any of it. I, I mean, it's, it is disappointing, but I can, I can, <laughs> I can forgive you. What I wanted to do with, with today, with our chance to chat was obviously talk about the police. And it's something that, that comes up a lot in, in the theme of our podcast, but I haven't really had someone in your position with your experience to sit down and, and talk to some of these, these issues. And I, I spent a little bit of time in the police, quite, quite a considerable amount less time than, than you served. I was in the police for just under five years. And I, you know, parts of it I loved, you know, I loved being an officer. I loved when, when I went for my passing out ceremony and then they said, you know, that's it. You held the office of a constable. Now you can place people under arrest and you can drive fast cars and all the very best bits of being a police officer. But I also found it really tough. I found it a really difficult organization to work for. And I was an idealist, you know, I, I wanted to be there to stand up for people that had nobody to protect them, to look after the vulnerable and hold the bullies of the world to account. And I could do that. And I saw that that was, that was what we were there for. But I did feel somewhat frustrated and somewhat strangled in many ways by, well, lots of things, bureaucracy, austerity, politics, and all those other factors. But you seem to have well, you lasted a considerable amount longer than I did, but you also, in your books, describe policing, I think, with a greater level of love than I ever managed to develop. What was it, what was it about the police that you loved so much? Gosh, where to begin? It's, for me, it's, it's a lifelong love affair. Um, I joined at the age of 22. Um, I retired on medical grounds a little bit earlier than planned at the age of... 48 and served for more than 25 years and I, I often say to people and I've written often in the past it, it was my duty and my joy I mean policing is utterly imperfect it's an imperfect response to an imperfect world but you know when you strip away 
so much of what seems to me unimportant and irrelevant, um, so much of the nonsense and noise. You know, the, the job of a police officer, and again, I've written about this, is, a, is it's about as extraordinary as a job could ever be. The job is to save lives and to find the lost and to bind up the broken boned and broken hearted and to protect the vulnerable and defend the weak and to step into harm's way in defense of complete strangers. As in the recent agonizing case of Sergeant Matt Rattana in South London, the job sometimes is to pay the greatest price of all. And, and when I think back over my career about the women and the men that I served alongside, I, mean, I think the finest of them are the finest of us all. Uh, and though I've now left the job, as we all call it, um, the job will never leave me. Um, I'm still in love with it now. I love that. I love the way you describe that. You, you still speak so incredibly uh, lovingly and respectfully about that institution, which having worked in the private security industry, which is largely full of ex-police officers, you, you can become you know as a gang you can start to become very negative and whiny and point out all that's bad about the institution but you do a good job of still pointing well out it's you know it's uh, again i often say and it's so important to point out i'm not a blind apologist for policing i'm i'm you know for all of the the, the genuine love and affection that i i express um I, i'm painfully aware of of policing's faults and failings. You know, I, there are times, there are occasions, there are days on which police officers, both individually and collectively, get things terribly wrong. Um, and, and because of the, the role that policing has in society, because of the responsibilities that police officers have, the consequences when they get it wrong are disproportionately damaging. Mm. Um, and I, you know, we shouldn't ever pretend that it's otherwise. Um, I, we should never, ever, ever shy away from holding policing up to the light, from asking difficult and demanding questions of it, um, asking uncomfortable questions of it. But, uh, but, but I, I think the thing that sometimes gets missed is that those in society who, who are often sort of portrayed as critics of policing and those who are indeed kind of blind critics of policing. I mean, you know, one of the things I often want to say is, is that if you sincerely want better policing in this country, you will find no greater allies than good police officers because they want exactly the same. There isn't a single one of them who thinks that policing is fine just as it is, that, that there's nothing we could improve upon or do better you know, more so now than ever at the end of a decade of austerity where the government has done untold harm to all of the frontline public services, not least to policing. You know, it's ever more true. There, there are a myriad of things that we could and should do better for victims of crime, for vulnerable children and adults, for perpetrators that we deal with you know the, the list goes on and on and on if you sincerely want better policing you'll find no greater ally than good police officers well said johnny you you mentioned matt Rattana's case at the start there and in, in fear of forgetting to come back to it why don't we address that now and, and perhaps you could tell me a little bit about that case so for those have have never heard of, of matt what what happened to him recently so matt was um in his early 50s he was uh, a, a Kiwi, a Maori by, by birth and heritage, passionate about his rugby, um, passionate about policing. Uh, and he served most of his career in the Met, um, uh, although he served some, some of his time actually back in the police service in New Zealand. And uh, I never had the privilege of serving with him, but a number of my really good friends did and know him well. And I haven't seen a photo of him in which he isn't smiling. He's appeared to have been this larger than life character, this great big bear of a man who was loved by everybody who ever came into contact with him. And a couple of months ago, he was on duty in the early hours of the morning, uh, 
Croydon Custody Centre and he was shot in the chest, at almost point blank range. And he never stood a chance. Uh, and as I've alluded to, and as I often say, you know, policing is very much a family. And the loss of one is felt by all. And in any other year, we would have gathered in our thousands, police and public alike, to line the streets and pay our last respects as his funeral cortege went by. And of course, the virus made that impossible. So I sat quietly at home and watched a live stream of his funeral service. And I listened to the commissioner's voice crack as she paid her tribute to him. And I watched as the all black legends in Zanbrook joined his friends in performing a final haka as his coffin passed by. And we said goodbye to one of our own, you know, most give what they can, some give all they have. And Matt was one such man. It's utterly, utterly heartbreaking. It's, it's a sense of camaraderie I've not found outside of the police. You know, I've not got anywhere near close to experiencing that since leaving the job. And even, even though I only spent a short period of it, it, it is in your, it's in your blood and uh, you do feel connected to a wider family and it's not a national thing. You know, I've traveled overseas and worked with guys as soon as they know I'm an ex copper or whatever. We have a relationship, other police forces yeah. around the world. And there is something there, isn't there? And I, I wonder how young you were when you realized that this was going to be the career for you. I think I was probably in my mid to late teens. Um, I, I, and in fact, though, there was, as I write about in the first book, there was a very specific moment in time where I think the penny dropped. And I was about 16 years old. Um, I was standing on Hammersmith Broadway at about quarter to eight in the morning, waiting for the bus to school. And it was a kind of grim, grey, grainy day. And school was never particularly my thing. I mean, I, I did all right, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an academic. I, I, I didn't like the confines of the classroom and um, I, you know, I wanted to be out in the world doing stuff. And I remember standing at this bus stop and, and watching a police officer walk down the other side of the road, doing nothing in particular, paying no attention to me, apparently not paying any attention to anyone. He was literally just walking along the pavement. And knowing what I know now, I suspect that he was cold and bored and tired and hungry. I suspect he was on his way back to the station for his breakfast, having been up since about half past four in the morning. You know, there was nothing glamorous uh, about the scene. Um, you know, there was no chase, there was no sirens, there was no nothing. There was just a PC in uniform walking along the pavement. And, and while I wouldn't want to give it the full kind of Damascus Road experience, I, absolutely in that moment something went click inside me mm. and I thought to myself that's what I want to do uh, and really from that moment onwards um, I, I don't think I ever really seriously considered anything else it was the only application form I ever filled out the only interview I ever went for the only job I ever really wanted to do and I, you know, I think if you were to ask me now, if you were to ask most police officers why they joined, um, they'd tell you really simply that it's because they wanted to help people. Mm. And the fact that that's an old, well-worn phrase doesn't make it any less true. As I, you know, as I look back now on my 16-year-old self, I, I don't know whether my my motivations were, were that noble or, or that well-rounded. I, I think I was looking for an adventure. Um, and absolutely, I wanted to be a part of something that mattered. And policing is very definitely that. So that was at 60. So how old were you when you joined then? Well, I went to university, um, um, but I, policing was always the plan. So I, I applied as soon as I finished at Reading. Um, and I joined, well, it took about a year to get through and in. Um, but I joined in 1992 at the age of 22. And, and, and set out on the adventure of a lifetime. 
And this was the Met. Was there any other force that had a look in or was it always going to be the Met? It was always the Met. I mean, I, I was actually born just outside London in Red Hill. Uh, and I, I spent the first 15 years of my life sort of 40 miles out of town. Um, but I'd lived in inner London uh, from the age of 15 onwards. Um, and no, I never considered anywhere else. So you went up to Hendon, I imagine it was Hendon and uh, the Peel, the Peel Centre and, and got stuck in. How was your experience at police training school? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, as I alluded to earlier, school wasn't my thing. And so, uh, you know, kind of the classroom stuff didn't immediately appeal to me. You know, I, I, you know, and later on in my career, when I was having to study for my sergeant's exam and my inspector's exam, I hated that stuff, kind of burying myself in, in the books. But but at least at Hendon, at least for the first time, it felt like the studying was unto something. There was a purpose to it. I, I wasn't just learning for the sake of learning. You know, I was learning the Theft Act and Section 1 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act because those were the things that I was going to have to use and apply out on the streets as a copper. Um, and of course, there's so much more to it than just learning laws. And I, you know, I love the physical stuff. I, uh, I, and I loved that first taste of being part of this policing family. And it, you know, it's as dysfunctional as every other family, but it's glorious too. There's certainly a few crazy relatives in the police family, yeah. So you chose to ascend the ranks fairly quickly in your policing career. So you obviously displayed some real skill and aptitude. And you didn't you win an award at training school? <laughs> the yes, they, they gave me something called the Baton of Honour. The Baton of Honour. Which sounds terribly grand. Um, I have to say, at, at that point, though, kind of, 18 years, 18 years, 18 weeks into my policing career. And at the age of 20, I was almost 23. It, it was at that stage, the proudest moment of my young life to be given this sort of award that apparently is for the top recruit in the intake. I don't know. I, it's, it's, I'm, I'm actually looking at the little replica you're given that's sitting on the shelf across from where I'm talking to you. Um, yeah, it was a lovely moment, but, but, you know, you learn policing by doing policing. You know, training school can teach you some law and procedure, but but actually, you know, you, you get out to begin the job for real, and that's where the training and the learning really begins. Yeah. And I, I wasn't the world's most natural street cop. You know, I've, I've worked with people down the years who were just, you know, what, what we would call natural thief takers. You know, they could step out the front of the station and within five minutes, they'd have found a drug dealer or a street robber or a shoplifter or whatever else. And I didn't seem to have that that kind of sixth sense. Um, so I made up for that just by working incredibly hard. I would uh, volunteer for every call, uh, volunteer to do the jobs that nobody else wanted to do, you know, kind of prove my worth in that way. Um, and, and I, I chose the promotion route, I suspect in part because I was, I was probably a better sergeant and inspector than I was a PC, um, because I knew and I loved and I understood policing, and I knew and I loved and I understood police officers, but there were thousands of them who were better at the frontline stuff than I was. Uh, and I guess I found my home in doing my best to help them to do their best. Mm. That's the thing that I loved. <clears throat> yeah, it's a nice, that's a nice description. I can still remember my first arrest. It was for domestic violence. I can remember the flat. I can rem remember the circumstances. I can remember desperately trying to remember to get the caution correct and then nervously presenting my prisoner to custody and giving my necessity and everything I had to do. What, what was yours like? As it were, every copper remembers their first arrest, don't they? Uh, uh, mine was was a drunk, a, a drunken incapable, some poor soul who had fallen out of the bottom of life and was collapsed on the pavement outside McDonald's on Victoria Street in central London. That was my first one. Yeah, you spent that first period in, in central 
London before you started to move around the city a bit. How was yeah, that? Yeah, those the first couple of years of my career, if I'm honest, were, were the only bit that I didn't fully love and enjoy. And and to tell the truth, it's mostly because it was a bit boring. You know, in central London, it's sort of so well policed that there's not an awful lot of crime. And actually, I, I joined the Met when the IRA was still heavily active on the mainland. Um, and, and so actually we ended up spending an awful lot of our time on counter-terrorism security patrols, which sound glamorous and aren't, sound important and are, but actually they're incredibly boring because you're given a very limited stretch of road, stretch of pavement, and for hours on end you walk up and down it. And, and you're there as a a visible deterrent, I suppose. And, and who knows what we prevented just by being there. But, but actually, day by day, hour by hour, it was incredibly tedious. Um, and so when I got to the end of my probationary period, the end of those first two years, I requested a, a development move to somewhere that was busier, somewhere that might test and stretch me a bit more. And they sent me to, to Brixton. Uh, and in many ways, that's that's where my policing journey really began. I would say from, from the day I walked through the front door at Brixton Nick, or the back door, from that day forwards, I pretty much loved every single passing minute of my policing career. And you've done something that's, I think, probably quite unusual, which is to live in an area that you've policed, right? You're, you're a South London man. Yeah, and I still live in Brixton now. Um, so uh, yeah, when I when I um, when I moved to Brixton, I was living in my first flat, which was on it's on the boundary road between Brixton and Clapham. So I walked to work. It took me about fifteen minutes to walk to work. And I think in an ideal world, um, in an ideal world, I think every police officer would live in the neighbourhood and the community that they police. It's that old Peelian idea that the police are the public and the public are the police. But the nature of the job and the nature of society is such that it's not always the safest thing to do. I, I remember very vividly one day, I had this um, black leather jacket that I'd been saving up for that I was immensely proud of. And I remember one day uh, I'd, I'd walked from home to work and the locker room where you got changed into your uniform was down in the basement of the Nick. I remember opening my locker door, swinging the door open, and I took my jacket off and hung it on the corner of the door. And as I did, I just saw this great big ball of spit running down the back of my jacket. And I suddenly realised, gosh, I, you know, I was dressed in my own clothes, in plain clothes, but somebody out there knew who I was and what I was. Uh, and somebody out there hated me as a consequence. Mm. And it was only a ball of spit, but that was unpleasant enough. And so there are sadly all sorts of fairly obvious and very good reasons why coppers tend to live a little bit further away. And of course, the reality now in central London on a PC starting salary, mm. you wouldn't be able to afford a shoebox, never mind a flat. There are all sorts of ways in which the world is changing. Yeah, and Brixton too. I mean, I know it's certainly not free of problems, but Brixton's changed considerably in the last 20 years. Oh, it's, well, it's, it's been my home for the last 28 years. Um, you know, it's where my wife and I started our married life. It's where we've raised our kids. It's where they went to school in the, in the local primary school where my wife used to teach. It's, you know, it's, it's home and it's filled with the most wonderful, beautiful people. Love it. Love it. I love Brixton Market. That's my, my favourite spot when I'm in town. So you chose to pursue a career in the management of, of policing. You went, became a sergeant fairly early in your career and then jumped up to inspector. Why do you think you chose, chose that path? Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't want to give uh, the impression that there was in any sense a carefully laid plan. Um, I, I, in a sense, I kind of jumped into the boat on the river. And for 25 years, I went where the current took me. 
Um, I mean, I joined the Met on something uh, on a, a sort of a graduate entry scheme at the time. It was called the High Potential Development Scheme. Uh, and so there was a career path set out for me up to the rank of inspector. And there was an expectation that I would do it within a certain period of time. So in as much as there was a plan for in the first seven years of my career, that was it. And, and I did get promoted quicker than normal. Uh, and then in some senses, maybe I got promoted quicker than was good for me. You know, back to what I said earlier, you, you learn policing by doing it. But I always chose to work in the busy places, always chose to work in the challenging places. And, and I hope I never shied away from that. But I got to inspector and loved it so much that, that I didn't really, you know, I was in charge of my own response team in West London. We were masters of our own world. Uh, and, you know, after five o'clock in the evening, all the bosses went home and we could get on with doing the job as, as it was supposed to be done. And, and I loved it so much that I, I kind of settled into it and had no real plans to, to move on until one day I went in to see the superintendent for, I think, my annual appraisal or something. He was a great guy, Ian Chappell, um, someone I looked up to then and now. And he basically, in a very friendly way, but he basically ordered me to apply for promotion to chief inspector. Uh, as I say, he had a big smile on his face and he was being incredibly encouraging. It was a, a vote of confidence in me, but he was also fairly unequivocal. And I think if he hadn't given me that kick up the pants, I'm, I'm not sure... I mean, I might have got there eventually, but I certainly wouldn't have put the form in that year. Um, but yes, I ended up as a, as a chief inspector. And, uh, and then it sort of, you, you kind of find yourself on a slight conveyor belt um, that, you know, once you get to sort of chief inspector and beyond, you know, three or four years into the rank, the general expectation is that you go for the next one. But I was, I was never sort of furiously ambitious. It, it, it wasn't kind of promotion or bust for me. I, I wasn't trying to clamber over other people to get there. I gen, at each rank, I genuinely loved what I was doing. Uh, and I didn't feel in any hurry to move on. Mm. But I, you know, I got to become a chief superintendent. And I, I had the privilege of being a borough commander in two different places, in Camden in North London and then Southwark in South London. And I'd spent a career doing wonderful jobs, but being a borough commander was the best job of all. I was going to ask whether that period when you were a governor in South London, well, West London with your response team, whether that was the sweet spot, but you'd say, no, actually, the privilege of being borough commander was the sweet spot. Well, I've, you know, I've, I, I feel spoiled because they were all sweet spots. You know, I was a, I was a response team sergeant at Peckham. And I remember, I mean, I remember vividly what it was either a late turn or a night duty. I think it was a late turn. I remember vividly standing in the corridor at Peckham Police Station, halfway between the control room and the custody suite. And I remember just checking the time on my watch and being disappointed that the time was going too quickly. That's how much I was loving it. So I love that. I loved being a response team inspector. Uh, I loved, as a chief inspector, being a football match commander. And I, I loved being the ops superintendent at Islington in North London and kind of leading the borough's response to knife crime. I genuinely loved all of it. But most of all, I loved being a borough commander. One of the specialisms that you, you chose to pursue during your career was being a hostage negotiator. Why did you, why did you choose to do that? Yeah, it's, so uh, for most of us, being a negotiator is something that you do alongside the day job. So it's, it, it's not a full-time role. I, well, I, I remember when I was a, a team inspector in West London, uh, I ended up having responsibility for an armed siege just off Shepherd's Bush Green. And it was my first exposure to a really big incident like that, where the whole world turned out to deal with it. You know, the, the firearms teams came, the, the specialists firearms team came, and a team of hostage negotiators came. And I remember them setting up in the front room of a house in the street where this incident was uh, happening. And I remember them, you know, explaining to me what their capabilities were and what their strategy would be. 
you know, that they were there to listen, that they were there to try and see this thing through to a safe conclusion, which ultimately is what happened. And I think probably that must have been the moment that the negotiating seed was sown. Uh, and, and it was something I always wanted to do. In the Met, uh, you can't apply to do it until you're an inspector. And in fact, I didn't apply until I was a chief inspector. But I, it was one of the greatest privileges that I ever had. The, the full title for the role is hostage and crisis negotiator. Uh, and it's important to, to get that, the kind of breadth of the role in because, because actually, as a negotiator, you very rarely come across the full-blown Hollywood hostage scenario, kind of the dog day afternoon, bank robbery gone wrong. That's, those things actually very rarely happen. The vast majority of the time, the vast majority of the occasions on which you're deployed, you're deployed to someone in crisis. You're just deployed to some poor lost soul on a window ledge or the parapet of a bridge or the edge of an icy cold pond. You know, somebody living through the worst day of their lives uh, and your job is to try to help them back from the edge. And it's amongst the greatest privileges I've ever had in my life to be able to do that. Is it right that when you used to receive phone calls, the first question they would ask you is, are you ready to save a life? Well, that's so. Yes, that 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 was the particular approach taken by one of the. So the hostage teams are led by uh, they're called hostage negotiator coordinators. So they're the team leader, uh, and a call will come into the Met's main control room, and and if it looks like negotiators are needed, then then the control room will call the coordinator, and the coordinator will call us. And Phil Williams is uh, who remains a good friend now. Um, it was one of the coordinators uh, and that's what he used to do when, when he rang you up um, to call you out you know you'd answer the phone and th there'd be no greeting of any description no hi it's Phil or no hi Johnny how are you or anything like that you'd pick up the phone you'd say hello and this voice at the other end would say are you ready to save a life and in, in, in a way it was a sort of a, it was a slight affectation but actually it had a remarkable way of focusing the mind uh, and actually of you know boiling the job of a negotiator down to its basic essentials you know right at the start of our conversation I, I talked about you know the job of a police officer is to save lives that's that's the greatest privilege the greatest duty that any police officer could ever have and so to be called up and asked if you're ready to do that well it's the greatest privilege of all do you have any example that you, you often reflect on or that stayed with you from your, your time working as a negotiator? I mean, all sorts of stories for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, I, I mean, pretty much every negotiating story is characterised by a degree of sadness, even though the overwhelming majority of them end happily or end as happily as these things can ever do. Um, because the very reason that you're there in the first place in these crisis scenarios is because someone's in trouble. So, so many of my negotiator memories are, are, are characterised by sadness. They're also characterised by a, a huge amount of emotion. Again, in the first book, I, I devote one whole chapter to a negotiation with a guy who was on a window ledge on the 17th floor of a block of flats. And even now thinking about that, I mean, he, you know, we, we got him down in the end, but it was a hugely emotional experience that still stirs emotions in me now because, you know, we were, we were a hair's breadth from him jumping or falling. Um, and it's, you know, one thing I've learned about policing, particularly, in, you know, in the last few years, looking back, that it's that it would be impossible to do the job of a police officer for any length of time. Um, not unlikely, not improbable, it would be impossible to do it for any length of time and, and to remain unaffected, untouched by the things you see and do. And you mentioned at the outset that your career came to an end earlier than perhaps you would have chosen it to on medical grounds. You've just referenced that, that pressure and the stress. So you talk about having a breakdown 
in your book blue large part of of that book and there's a line in it that you describe a, a vial a black a vial of black ink cracking in your head and then it just sort of spreading the way you described that was amazing having lived with people with severe depression before and it it's very hard i think to do a good job of truly painting a picture of of just how where the line is from a physical ailment to a mental health issue it can be quite hard to imagine mental health issues sometimes but i think you did an excellent job at describing that would you share a little bit about that with us johnny yeah it was i it so it happened uh in april of 2013 and i i was the borough commander of southwark at the time uh and as i've already said i loving every passing minute of the job. The problem was that, that I was starting to become very seriously ill, um, compounded by the fact that actually I didn't know or understand that that's what was happening to me. But, but at the end of April, 2013, I had a massive nervous breakdown and, and it was a combination of profound physical exhaustion, uh, deep anxiety um, and overwhelming depression. And, and it was the depression was the thing really that, that broke me in, into a thousand pieces and left me in a heap on the ground. And I, within a very short space of time, I, w- I went from being a man you know, apparently trusted to run one of the biggest and busiest boroughs in London to being a man, a man uh, barely able to run a bath. And you know, that's not a metaphor. That's a literal statement of fact. Uh, I ended up being off work for more than seven months, having barely missed a day in my career up to that point in time. And although I made it back to work eventually, enormously well supported by my colleagues um, in the Met and indeed my friends outside of the Met, though I got back eventually, I never made it back to full operational duties. Um, uh, And that's the reason why in the end I was medically retired four and a half years earlier than planned. Had, had I not got sick, I'd still be there now with just under a couple of years to go. Do you think the police as an institution, as an organisation, could do a better job at protecting the mental health of its staff? Well, I think, you know, I look back to seven years ago and it's just not something we ever talked about. You know, there's there's some current research that says that most of us during the course of our, our lives, a, a normal life, whatever that might be, most people are exposed to extreme trauma on three to four occasions, which is three to four occasions too many, but, but that's life. But this research that looked at police officers and paramedics uh, suggests that, that those people during the course of their professional lives are likely to be exposed to extreme trauma on four to six occasions wow three to four times in an ordinary life four to six hundred times in a policing life and I mean I you know I've quoted that figure a lot of times recently and I still find it staggering Uh, how can that possibly be without consequence and yet go back seven years I'd never heard it talked about I'd never heard it discussed I'd never you know, we, we talked about mental health in an operational sense, you know, dealing with people who were missing from secure units or dealing with people in crisis, you know, not least as a negotiator. But I'd never heard a conversation about our own mental health, about the impact that, that the job has on you, which it just had never been talked about. I think we just, I'd never thought about it. I, you know, you just you shrug your shoulders and you get on because that's the job and that's what you do. And and actually the challenge that's presented by some of these deeply traumatic situations is, is actually, it's part of the reason that you joined, Mm. you know, to be able to make a difference on the days when the world is falling apart, to be able to make a difference to people whose lives are falling apart. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, as recently as six, seven years ago, I just think policing had never really thought about it or talked about it. You know, fast forward on seven years uh, and, you know, policing still has a way to go, but it's come a million miles. And I think there is now a much broader, wider recognition uh, of the impact of the job on the people who do it. Uh, and I think 
policing is getting better at looking after its people as a consequence of that. But as I say, there's still a long way to go. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that because I've been out since 2014 and I didn't know any different when I was out. My very first shift, very first shift, you know, box fresh police outfit and uh, was a fatal car collision. Young man went out, had an argument with his partner, had something to drink, was driving home, lost control of it, wrapped it around an oak tree a few hundred yards away from his house. 21, 22 years old. I had to deliver the agony message to his dad and his dad had another daughter that had died of cerebral palsy and his wife had left him. The only thing he had left was his son who's just killed himself in a car accident. The second half of the shift was a woman with a terminal illness at home and she woke up one night, walked to the toilet, slipped over, banged her head and died in advance of when was expected of it. That was my first shift. And, yeah. and like you say, three or four hundred experiences of trauma. That's the life of a police officer. And I think in many ways, people don't imagine that's what the police do you know they might see you in uniform going driving fast car they don't expect you holding the hands of people and explaining to them their loved one has just died it's it's an extraordinary emotional weight to go with an everyday job put your uniform on have a cup of tea get out again see what happens today well i mean that's so much of the reason why i write now it's so much of the reason why from time to time i'll say yes if you know, someone in the press asks if I'll do an interview. It, you know, policing is imperfect, but but the vast majority of the people who do the job are extraordinary. And I think most of the rest of us, most of the time, completely take it and completely take them for granted. Uh, and so I I try to tell some of the stories of policing and of police officers. Just... Uh, I want the rest of the world to know the things that I've seen. So what led you to do that then? When, when did you decide, I'm going to write, I'm going to write a book? Because it's been a huge success. I mean, it was a, it was a Sunday Times bestseller. I know, I know lots of people that have, have read it and know you before I got to know you. So what, what, what led you on that journey of becoming an author? Well, it's, I, I mean, gosh, there have been some surreal things that have happened in my life, but this is right up there. Um, I mean, initially, at least, you know, there wasn't a day where I sat down and thought, right, I'm going to write a book now. In fact, there have been, you know, that conversation that you often have with your mates, we've all got a book in us somewhere. What's yours? I can remember two or three occasions having that conversation in the pub or in a restaurant or whatever, and saying to people, oh, yeah, I'm the exception to that rule. Um, I'm, I'm not going to write a book. But A, because I didn't think I was capable, and B, because the only thing I wanted to do was be a police officer. As I say, there was no plan B. But, but I did too, you know, in the months before my illness, I did begin to realise increasingly the extent to which my job was revealing to me a world that was beyond the view of most of my friends, hmm. uh, you know, all of my friends outside of policing. And I did find myself wondering whether I had some sort of a responsibility, a duty even, to tell the world beyond policing about the world that policing reveals. And I did ask myself, even before I got ill, maybe I should write a book. I mean, I'd have to get a ghostwriter because I haven't got the time to do it. But so, so there was that little kind of nugget of a kernel of an idea. But then of course, within actually just a couple of months, I, I was in a dreadfully bad way, hanging on to the ragged edges. And, and all of life was up in the air. But what happened was that probably, you know, the first three months or so of being off work, maybe a little bit more, were utterly hellish. I mean, it was just a question of getting through the days. But slowly as the medication began to work and the counselling became ever more helpful, uh, and actually I just got some rest into my body, um, slowly I did begin to get a little bit better uh, and I got to the point where I knew that I wasn't ready yet but I'd get back to work eventually and uh, and so I started to work my way towards that and one of the things that had happened as a consequence of my breakdown was that my brain had basically shut down you know, to other than just the very basics but I'd stopped using it and stretching it and and it had fallen half asleep 
Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe it would be a good idea just to sit down for a few minutes each day and just write some stuff. Uh, and to start with, it, it was actually a very mechanical thing, just write to get my brain going. But what I very quickly discovered, which is what so many people discover, is that writing is enormously cathartic. It is in and of itself a form of therapy. And as I started to get a little bit better, and as I started to have a little bit more energy, I sat at, sat at my kitchen table for longer periods of time and began to write the stories of my policing life. Uh, and I did that actually on and off over the course of a couple of years uh, until it got to the point that maybe there was a book here. And I was incredibly fortunate after a number of false starts to find the perfect agent. And she worked on the book with me to kind of knock it into better shape. And then she found a publisher and the publishers published it. And the rest is history. The experience with the second book was a little bit different. That time I did sit down and think, okay, I'm going to start writing the book now. But I, I discovered that I really love writing. Uh, and that I really love trying to tell stories. And I'm not the best writer in the world, and, uh, but, but I think there are some stories worth telling. Oh, I think you are a jolly good writer, Johnny. And what you do exceptionally well is articulate the views of many, many of us serving our ex-police officers. It's such a difficult thing to be outwardly spoken when you're in the job. Like you said, I think you said at the start, you know, people, people see the uniform, they don't see the person, or I certainly read that somewhere in your book. And it's true, right? It's extremely hard and understandable for someone to see you on anything other than the police. You know, if they have a bad experience with the police, they don't have a ex bad experience with a police officer, they have a bad experience with the police. And, and it's very hard to, to, to change that and actually have an attempt at writing about the humanity behind policing. And I think you do you do that very well and I feel comfortable promoting your books uh, for people that might have an anti-police attitude so we'll give this a read because this does a good job of summing up certainly in many ways how I feel about the job. On this latest book and you write about a number of challenges facing police and perhaps we could talk about one of those and it seems timely to talk about issues of knife crime and violence. We mentioned before we started recording about the incident of the George Floyd murder, killing. I don't know how you choose to describe it in America earlier this year and the movement and, and the, the, the discourse that has followed that. Would you talk to me a little bit about your experience from the police of, of navigating this complex and incendiary topic? Gosh, where to begin? Well, so let's begin with George Floyd, um, because there are some who say this is an American story that has no relevance here. And that just clearly isn't so. You know, it, it's just apparent that, that his death and particularly the manner of his death, you know, carries echoes of the experience of so many black people in this country, uh, not least their experience of policing. You know, I said earlier on that the, the greatest privilege, the, the greatest duty that any police officer could ever have is to save the life of another human being. And the killing of George Floyd, therefore, represents an absolute betrayal of everything that I've ever stood for as a human being, um, everything I ever believed in as a, as a police officer. And it seems to me that the only possible response to his death is one of righteous anger and a deep cry for real and lasting change. Uh, and of course, that's about so much more than just policing. It's about society as a whole. And it's incredibly difficult. And it's incredibly uncomfortable. But the difficulty and the discomfort is as nothing compared with the experience of generations of black men and women who've grown up in a system that I have increasingly come to see and understand as, uh, as institutionally racist. You know, uh, black people in this country have faced, and this, you know, I'm, I'm a, middle-aged, middle-class white bloke who's also a retired copper 
talking incredibly clumsily about these things. It's really important to say that when it comes to black history and black experience, I've got nothing to teach and everything to learn. And so when protests gather in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, my first responsibility is to listen. You know, we live in a world where increasingly yelling at one another with our fingers stuck in our ears is the only form of communication that some of us seem to know. It's the responsibility of all of us, not least of police officers, to stop and listen and to try to understand what's being said. And having tried to understand, then actually commit ourselves to real and lasting change. Because if you listen to what many people in the black community will say, they'll say, well, the police are racist. They always have been, they always will be. Nothing changed after the Scarman report in the 80s. Nothing changed after the Stephen Lawrence report at the end of the 1990s. Nothing ever changes. Black people are disproportionately stopped and searched by the police. They're disproportionately tasered. They disproportionately end up in prison. Uh, and, and the story of disproportionality extends far beyond policing. You know, black people in this country are disproportionately more likely to be born into poor neighborhoods and households, to be excluded from education, to be unemployed, to suffer with mental ill health. And, you know, to, to bring it right up to the realities of 2020, they're disproportionately more likely to die of COVID. You know, the, these are not opinions, these are facts. Uh, and they paint a picture of a form of injustice and inequality that is both societal and generational. And so I'm trying to educate myself recognizing that it's my responsibility and mine alone to understand the history of racism, to understand the history of slavery, to try to understand the experience of black people in this country. Uh, and I, I suppose where I've got to, my concern is not that the debate about racial injustice in this country has gone too far, it's that it hasn't gone nearly far enough. My fear is that four or five or six months on from the death of George Floyd, already so much of the world is impatient to move on when nothing actually of real substance has changed. There have been marches and there have been demonstrations and there have been statues torn down and we've seen, to their credit, a lot of leading sports folk taking the knee and, you know, uh, committing themselves to the cause of anti-racism but actually the fundamental societal systemic stuff hasn't changed and policing is a part of that i mean i, I think to be honest it suits the politicians and many in the press and others in positions of power for for the focus to remain on policing because it means they're under less pressure to get their own houses in order but I think policing should still be first in line in accepting the responsibility to change. And that's by nature of the role that policing has in society uh, and the powers that police officers have been given. Uh, I think we should have higher expectations of police officers than we do of anyone else. Now, I think policing the Met is what I know best has changed beyond recognition in the almost 30 years since I've joined. Uh, I watched earlier this week Steve McQueen's film, Red, White and Blue, about the experience of Leroy Logan, who I know, who's a friend, uh, as a young black recruit in the Met in the late 80s. And I, I watched it kind of horrified as much as anything. I, I do think the Met has changed in those 30 plus years, but I still think that it's got a long way to go. And I still think that society has got a long way to go. Uh, I've got no interest in political correctness or in being woke, whatever the hell that means. But I, I do have an interest in trying to understand history 
and in trying to follow evidence. And I recognize, I understand now that it's not enough not to be racist, that you've got to be anti-racist. Um, it's not enough to be a silent supporter of an anti-racist cause. You've got to be an active participant in it. But I'm picking and I'm choosing my words carefully because I recognize that I've still got a long way to go and that I'm still learning. But that's at least some of where I'm at. In your conclusion of the second book, you give this example of a of a boy that commits murder in, a, in an instant of night crime and how the, the immediate response typically would be for the press to focus on that. We've got a problem with knives in this area. We've got a problem with violence. The police need to deal with it through an increasing stop and so whatever, whatever, whatever. And then you use that C.S. Lewis quote about first things first and not second things first and getting things in the right order. And you take us back through an example of where that incident might have began. It didn't begin that morning. It didn't begin that week. But actually, the steps that took place that led to a position where a 15-year-old boy chooses to carry a knife, chooses to use it, it goes so much further than it being a policing problem with a policing response. And it mm -hmm. touches so many other areas of governance, of support of the way we try and live as best we can in a dem democratic system in closing almost would you touch on on the that because i think it's a hard thing to talk about superficially but you're absolutely right to point that out to make that point that we can often address these issues on a superficial level and they are far more deep-seated than that yeah Gosh, so so much of the second book um, is about trying to understand what, what the author Michael Marmot would describe as the causes of the causes. Uh, and I use the example of Billy Smith, a 17-year-old boy. Now, he's not a, a real person. He's, a, he's an archetype. But he's absolutely a uh, an accurate representation of so many of the young men I encountered during the course of my career. And I tell the story of Billy being arrested following a fatal stabbing. And I ask where the initial focus will be. What will the media focus on? What, what questions will be asked on the floor of the House of Commons? And in almost every case, we will focus on the fact that Billy is the member of a gang, uh, that he was involved in dealing drugs, and that he was carrying a knife. And we will define it in its entirety as a crime problem. And we will give it to the police to fix. And so often, so much of the time, we get no further. But if we get no further, we completely and utterly miss the point. And we rule out any chance or any possibility of actually fixing the thing. We would be absolutely right to suggest in the first instance that knife crime and drugs and gangs are a crime problem and a police problem. And absolutely that, that the police should be first in line to respond to those things. That, that will always be the case, but it's only the beginning of the story. We have to look deeper. One of the reasons why Billy was out on the streets dealing drugs was because he didn't have a job and he had no prospect of getting a job. Well, that's an economic problem with nothing to do with crime. Looking deeper though, one of the reasons he didn't have a job is because he spent much of his teenage life excluded from education and he left school with, without any qualifications. Well, that's an educational problem. But you look further still to the neighborhood and the community where Billy grew up which was high crime, low aspiration, where many of the young adult role models were toxic, people already involved in crime who were grooming Billy for the same. Well, that's a societal problem that extends far beyond the bounds of policing. But even then, we've not got to the heart of it. We need to get find our way to Billy's front door and then look behind it if we're able. And what we will find in... in 
the overwhelming majority of cases is that Billy grew up in a home where he was exposed to extraordinary levels of violence and trauma. So you begin with what everyone defines as a crime problem to be fixed by the police using an enforcement and then wonder why 10 years later the problem is still exactly the same and you have to begin to peel away the layers. Crime is only ever a symptom of something that lies deeper. So you get the economic problem of unemployment, of generational worklessness. Beneath that, you get to the educational problem of school exclusion and educational underachievement. Peel away that layer and you get to the societal problem about poverty uh, and inequality and injustice within local communities. Peel away that and you get to the problem in the home of violence and trauma that is beyond comprehension. Uh, in almost every case I ever dealt with involving a young man who had become involved in serious violence, peel away the layers and you'll find that he grew up in a home where serious violence was an everyday reality. Until we begin to get serious about the causes of the causes, we'll never get anywhere close to finding the solutions. And hearing that, it, it would be understandable to feel whew, somewhat disillusioned and fatigued at the, the complexity of these issues. But you're a hopeful man. I, I know that of you. And I, I just wonder, in closing, Johnny, what, what is your hope for the future, the future of policing and, and the future of some of these complicated societal issues? I think, you know, in the last 12 months, particularly, I, I found that hope has been tested like never before for all of the reasons that are obvious and familiar to all of us. There, there is an element of stubbornness to hope. There's an old story told in the good book about Abraham. Uh, and there's a line about him that says that he, against hope, believed in hope. And that's kind of where I find myself at at the moment. But, but, but it's, it, it's not hope based on some romantic notion of intangible things. It's, it's based on real lived experience. You know, for every Billy who ends up in terrible trouble, there are a dozen others who don't. You know, my, my hope is found in the stories of boys and young men who turn their lives around. My hope is found in the stories of slaves who are rescued, of women and children who escape abusive relationships, of uh, alcoholics and drug addicts who beat the addiction. Uh, my hope is found in the everyday stories of human kindness that have peppered this year, of, of people loving their neighbours, of looking out for the person who lives across the road, of of doing all the stuff that never gets anywhere close to the headlines, but actually defines who we are as people. So my hope is, is based, my hope is based on people and on their stories uh, and on the realization that, you know, life's journey doesn't have to end in a prison cell or a morgue, that there's a whole lot more to it than that. Johnny Sutherland. Thank you, mate. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I think Johnny is a remarkably humble and compassionate man. Wouldn't you agree? He seems to have somehow avoided the wary cynicism which so often infects many career bobbies. Quite understandably, when they spend such a large part of their life dealing with the elements of society most of us try best to avoid. As a police officer, you are given an especially unique perspective on life. You will witness in your working day events that few people will ever experience in the entirety of their lives. In his books, Johnny does an exceptional job of sharing that perspective in a way that many police officers would want to, but few could or indeed have. I really recommend them to you. I'm so glad Johnny paid tribute to Sergeant Matt Rotana at the start of this podcast. When we recorded this conversation, I was unaware that I'd actually met Matt. I realised after seeing his photo on the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Awards 
where he was posthumously honoured for his work in community rugby. Matt was the sergeant of a response team in Hackney who I went on attachment with prior to transferring to the Met back in 2013. And even though we only spent a couple of days together, I remember him just as Johnny described. He was a big guy. He was a warm guy. He had the respect of his team. And I remember that he offered to put me up at his house whilst I was on attachment, which I thought was incredibly kind. I am sorry to anyone who has been dealt with badly by the police. I have myself in some countries. I've even been mugged with the help of the police in one particular part of the world. I will never know what it's like to be routinely and unjustly stopped and searched on the basis of my race. So I can't begin to imagine the hurt that this injustice could create. I do, however, find it hard to offer a perspective that isn't biased in defence of the police. I have to confess I often feel quite upset over the growing animosity there seems to be in society towards our police officers. It just seems to be an increasingly impossible job to hold. I fear that society's default response to the police is becoming one of opposition. To think the worst first before any evidence comes to light which is a really sad state of affairs. Our police force is far from perfect. There is just cause for reform. In fact, I think the police, like most public institutions, should remain in a constant state of reformation where faults and failings and inadequacies are identified and remedied. But I would love to see a paradigm shift whereby there is a greater deal of community ownership over the police and with it more grace more understanding more empathy towards the people that wear this uniform let's not wait for a police officer to be murdered before we thank them for their duty thank you as ever for listening to the podcast and your continued support for blue bear coffee co the producer of this show We've just released our first blend of coffees from Brazil, Colombia and the DRC. We've called it Freedom Coffee. Give it a try. Find it at bluebearcoffee.com. I really look forward to speaking to you soon. Peace.